Hello and welcome to Life of the School, episode 100. My name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher at Acton Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode of Life at the School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them how they get in the classroom, what are they currently working on, and what are their hopes for the future. This episode, I sit down with Dr. Brian Dewsbury. Brian is an associate professor of biological sciences at the University of Rhode Island. In addition to teaching principles of of Biology 101. Brian is the principal investigator for the Science Education and Society, or SEAS, research program. The SEAS program examines broad questions relating to the delivery and practice of education from kindergarten to doctorate. Brian earned his bachelor's degree from Morehouse College and a master's and PhD from Florida International University. You can follow Brian on Twitter at BM Dewsbury. Welcome, Brian. Hi, how are you? Great. Thanks for joining me here in the summer. Um, seems like you've been pretty busy for it being a uh, a summer of, of pandemic. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we always find ways to not to, to be busy all the time. Yeah. So um, in addition to trying to get a little bit of downtime, I saw that you were uh, just a speaker at a conference just earlier this week. Well, a couple of them, actually. So I spoke at... Um... The Botanical Society of America's annual conference, and then um, uh, PSN Global actually had a really good conference that I uh, spoke about inclusion in higher education at. So, yeah, it was two wonderful experiences. Nice, nice. Yeah, I've been finding that I've been having a. Normally in the summer, I will like try to go away for a week to go to conference, like a conference or a three okay. or four day or something like that. And uh, this summer, I've been doing a lot of like hour and a half of PD, <laughs> like right. jump on a Zoom call, jump on a webinar, right. you know. That, yeah, the, that whole the whole dynamic has changed, right? You know, it's one thing to go on a plane and then be somewhere for a week. It's another thing to, to get online for two hours, take a bathroom break, go back online. <laughs> it's a very <laughs> different type of world, but, you know, we do what we have to do to stay safe. Yeah, yeah. It's been, um, I would say I... I I didn't think I was going to be doing really much PD at all this summer because all of, as I said, all of the stuff I was supposed to go, I think last week I was supposed to spend the the week at UMass um, at a, at a biotech workshop um, that's like on my paper calendar in the kitchen um, (laughs) that I was supposed to be there. (laughs) But, uh, but yeah, I had, I had two, I think two long week long things that I was scheduled. And as soon as like everything got canceled, I was like, well, I guess I'm just working on regular curriculum, but I, I, my calendar has been filled up with all these like one hour things here and there. And I actually just filled, I think next week I'm going to do uh, uh, one of the workshops I've done uh, with the, the group uh, Tiny Earth. They're doing, they've flipped all their resources and they're doing a, a four hour PD with some follow up stuff um, next week uh, to sort of talk about how to do their normally very heavy hands on wet lab stuff right. and the virtual tools they've built. So, um, yeah, people yeah. are pivoting. People are pivoting, and, and maybe you know, if you want to look for a silver lining in all this chaos, um, it, it it appears that the the forced pivot that we've all had to go through is is breeding some interesting innovation mm. um, that people may not have otherwise considered if you know the whole country didn't have to be in quarantine. <laughs> so you know, yeah, online workshops, online tools. How do you do online labs and you know, I'm seeing professors come up with some really good pedagogies that, that frankly, 
some of us in the faculty development field were trying to push years and years and years. <laughs> um, but it's yeah, necessity is the mother of invention, I think is the phrase. So yeah, so that's where we at. Um, so it's good to see some of that happening. Um, that being said, <laughs> I, I will confess to you that I do look forward to to the point in time when I could see people less than six feet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I I will say that I I ebb and flow from like optimism about being able to pull some of these things off and then mm-hmm. like depths of despair of how am I going to pull this <laughs> off? <laughs> yeah, I would so. say depths is more common than the <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've had, it's been a lot of up and down this this yeah. summer as I you know I get this inspiration and I get really excited about something. But yeah, mm-hmm. I will say um, also for me the you know I I deal with teenagers every day like that's that's mm-hmm. sort of my lifeblood and there's a reason I enjoy doing what I do and mm-hmm. it's really not to sit in Zoom meetings with adults right. uh, talking about like safety protocols. But right. I I want to talk I want to talk biology and I want to talk to teenagers about it like right. that's that's my and so I get a lot of uh, both, uh, energy and inspiration from my, from my teenagers that I spend all my time with. They, they make me laugh. They keep me, they keep me grounded and to not spend time during the summer, during the summer, I'm in this weird headspace, but I'm also not with my, the people who make my job worthwhile. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think that, that makes it a, a more difficult time to, to try to do this work. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I know we'll probably get to this a little later on in the podcast, but I, I have trying to. I've been reflecting on on what I miss the most, you know, with yeah. the face to face classroom, and, and because that's likely what might happen in the fall and spring. Who knows how long? You know, <laughs> we might have some adaptation. You know, high flex is the new buzzword in higher ed, uh, um, okay. which makes people cringe sometimes. But um, a lot of people, when I talk to them about curriculum design and inclusive teaching, I, I think they assume that my own training kind of came from the classic models of, you know, backward design and assessment. And, you know, yeah, there was a lot of that, right? But the things where, where I really cut my teeth is a colleague of mine who's a professor of theater and who really worked with me on, on reading nonverbal cues and reading a room and cultivating energy in a physical space and what that's looked like. So if you've, if you've ever been to a play, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? This is the same reason why I love stand-up comedy and things like that. There's something about, you know, crowd dynamics and just being there that I that that really informs everything I do more than kind of the more mechanical things. Mm-hmm. So having to give up a lot of that, <laughs> uh, I, I think was perhaps one of the hardest parts. Um, and the big struggle is is how much of that can I maintain, you know, if I'm doing it remotely. So we'll see. We'll see. All right. Well, I, I think we, as, as I mentioned off air, uh, you were recommended as a guest by Paul Strode and anybody who's ever heard Paul Strode on the podcast, he's been on a couple of times in a few contexts the two of us get on and then whatever prepared questions I had go out the window. So, uh, you are living up to a Strode recommendation. (laughs) We're going off. So I'm going to try to get us onto, uh, onto my, my sort of prepared, uh, trend. And, um, you should have have Paul and I on together. That's what you need to do. He's probably the person between sort of texting and Zoom calls and that sort of stuff. And I think we're we're supposed to present at the virtual conference in November together mm-hmm. uh, at NABT coming up. So I'll, mm-hmm. that's, what, again, a good thing. I'll have an excuse to talk to Paul coming up. Yeah, yeah. So he's a very thoughtful guy. 
Yeah. All right. Well, let's get to that first question, which is um, going to be a little different. Normally I ask people, you know, how they get into a high school classroom or sometimes a middle school classroom, but mm-hmm. I don't have a lot of professors on here who strictly are um, higher ed. Uh, but how did you become a, a professor at URI? What led you to the college classroom that you're in? Well, I applied for a job at URI and they said yes. <laughs> That's the short answer to your story. But uh, the, the longer version is, is, I guess, both conventional and unconventional at the same time. I mean, I, I was in grad school for um, marine ecology and economics. Um, mm-hmm. And if most of your listeners may know, uh, if you're in a, a science grad program, it's very research heavy. Mm-hmm. And there's a, a almost a default expectation that you're being trained for a tenure track position as a research mm-hmm. professor in the thing that you're studying in grad school. And I, I think perhaps in the first, you know, half year of my grad program, that would have accurately, accurately described me as well. Um, but but the, the other layer to this, which maybe sometimes non-STEM people don't always realize, is not not only are you trained for a career in research in the thing you're studying, it is sometimes assumed that by developing expertise in that one thing, that de facto gives you the skills to teach a classroom. (laughs) Um, And as somebody who's married to a K-12 teacher, I I found that concept to be mind-boggling from the very beginning. (laughs) Yeah. And um, and I I saw as a grad student the immediate consequences of that sort of laissez-faire mentality, right? So this is the early 2000s. And, and so to be fair, this is the early days of things like vision and change and mm-hmm. some of these big federal documents that, that basically admonished U.S. higher ed and say, look, man, you want to have to do something different. Um, so that movement was just beginning. Um, but I, at the same time, began to TA a class in ecology. And I'll be honest with you, Aaron, I mean, the first semester I taught that class, everything changed. And I, and I think, you know, maybe many of your listeners, maybe even yourself could kind of speak to a point in your life, a point in your professional and personal life. When you, when you did this thing and this thing spoke to you in a way that nothing else can. Mm-hmm. So I, I love marine ecology. I did, you know, two, 3,000 dives in Florida Keys. It's a beautiful time. But... The question of what are you going to get up to do for the next 40, 50 years of your life and really feel like you've done good in this world, if you really feel like you've you know, made humanity better, make the lives of people better, um, it, it really, I knew in the moment that that was going to be it. Mm-hmm. And the semester I taught, I began teaching. I, I was awful, man. I guess, <laughs> I, guess I, yeah, I, I was handed a syllabus and, you know, do this, do that, make sure they don't kill themselves and, you know, uh, we'll see you in three months kind of thing. There was no real training on this, yeah. right? Um, but what, what I did do was I, I got to know the students. I, I started to interview them one-on-one and ask them about, like, why they want to be pre-med and, you know, because they didn't, like, ecology they just want to degrade kind of thing um and i and i get to talk to him about their lives and being first generation american so this was in miami florida by the way so there's a lot of kind of first generation college students and 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 why do making certain career choices and and what it has to do with their view or their perception of the american middle class what it what it takes to get to that um and as as i i guess i began to kind of humanize them 
right? They became more than students. They, be, they became people with stories and narratives. Mm. That then impacted how the curriculum of the classroom was designed. So now you're starting to think about, well, how do I expose you to different careers in science? How do I involve your parents in your career decision-making process in a way that's not um, demanding of you, but also respectful of the cultural realities in which you live every day? Um, it, it leads to some really uh, kind of social questions. Um, and that's where, for me, it, it, the lesson was the curriculum has to be student-centered. Um, you know, all the active learning, all the flipped classrooms, all the clickers, all that stuff is cool, but <laughs> you have to know who the students are first as people. And once you kind of establish that relationship, then you decide what's appropriate for that context. And that context can change every single semester, every single year. So though I was studying marine ecology, I, I knew in that semester that my career post-PhD was either going to be 100% practitioner, lecturer, instructor, or if I did have a research program, which I do, it's going to study um, how to make that practice as best and as inclusive as it can be. So, you know, 50 job applications later, <laughs> um, some weird interviews. Um, University of Rhode Island, I guess, took a chance on the vision that we had, and, and here we are. Oh, you brought flood back of memories to me because um, mm -hmm. one of the things I did when I was in college <clears throat> before the 2000s um, uh, was I was a, uh, as a, as my senior year of college, I actually TA'd the intro bio course at mm -hmm. UMass. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny because when I was doing it, I was looking at, at it through the lens of being interested in teaching. I, I had already sort of decided that teaching was a possible pathway for me after I got out of college. Uh -huh. And so I think I looked at it through that lens. And, and I know that as a general rule, the undergrads who were like me, and there weren't many of us, were okay. generally viewed as the stronger of the TAs. And the graduate students were people who were just doing it because they had to. Uh, <laughs> well, well, their bi biology must might've been much better. They didn't, they didn't put in the same time and care mm -hmm. on average. And I'm not going to disparage the whole group because there were very good grad students who did TAing, but the, the small group of undergraduate TAs mm -hmm. like, like planned and prepped and, and treated it not like it was a burden that was distracting them from the bench, but mm -hmm. something that they were there to do because they wanted to, to help, you know, almost like a mentoring help first year biology students figure out how to do things. Right. Um, it was a different relationship, but uh, the thing you said about interviewing students to get to know them and like, I mean, it's, it's, it's probably because of your lack of uh, training. Like, I don't know that anybody ever told me to do that. That's sort of a, uh, it's brilliant. I wish somebody had told me to start doing that, you know, 25 years ago. Yeah. Interview your students and find out and, and figure it out. I had actually thought that I was thinking about keeping a notebook this year, particularly as we go digital about mm -hmm. my students where when I check in with them, I can take notes and that sort of stuff. And I've done that sort of informally at different times in certain specific contexts, but never, I, I don't think I've ever formally thought to do it that way. And it seems obvious, um, but, <laughs> but yeah, it was a brilliant decision. Um, yeah. I'm, so I'm curious a little bit about the, the situation in terms of Rhode Island is URI uh, considered an R1 where like it's, it has a uh, publish or perish uh, kind of <laughs> culture or is it, is it one that has that, uh, 
that teaching is like is uh-huh. valued because I do know that certain schools vision and change is a big part of the culture because teaching is viewed on par with getting grants and stuff. Ha, huh, that's a good question. Um, I, I laugh because it's, it's funny that you, you kind of equated R1 with publish or perish. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, you certainly can perish um, in different yeah. ways. Um, but I, I think it is possible to be an R1, um, but still, you know, really value what teaching brings to the campus and, and mm. what it brings to the undergraduate population. Undergraduate population. Um, and even on one campus such as mine, it would be very difficult to sort of generalize what the culture is in terms of teaching, the support of teaching and the publish and perish model. Um, because I could tell you that it really changes from department to department, college to college. Yeah. Um, and I'm amazed actually, when I talk to colleagues across campus, um, the response to different um, parts of your professional portfolio. Right. Um, I would probably argue that the fact that, my teaching, my research program has been there six years, you know, has made it to associate level. It's probably emblematic of the fact that there is a good amount of support mm. um, for that, for, for thinking outside the box on what, what high quality inclusive teaching could look like. Um, you know, I would honestly call out my dean as, as somebody who's, who's just supported this unorthodox notion from day one because not everybody else did. <laughs> right yeah. um and there were people who openly questioned you know the, the tactic and, and you're not a real professor i mean there, there's there's been some of that but I, i've been raised to kind of drown the noise out and push forward if you know you're doing good work um <laughs> and i i think the lesson here Aaron, is that on, on any campus whether it's an r1 or not because believe it or not there are liberal arts colleges for who teaching is supposed to be a central mission and oh yeah you would think, right, exactly. You would expect to have a robust culture of support. For, no, 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 you know. So I, I think no matter what the institution is, it's important for people who think in this way and want to employ these practices to kind of quickly identify who your allies are. And mm-hmm. they may not always be in orthodox spaces. And then once you have them, um, you know, use them not in a nefarious sense, but in, <laughs> in, in a way to... Um, just always remind yourself that what you're doing is right and, and, and seek to collect data wherever possible. And, and data broadly defined, not just you know, academic performance, but things like sense of belonging and things like that. Um, so that when the time comes, you can kind of make the case for why your approach is important. In the early years, uh, so I started at URI in 2014. And um, you know, some people were direct, some people were indirect but not everybody quite got it right <laughs> yeah. not, not everybody understood why you have an early intervention week or having them write reflection assignments first day of class and things like that but once the results started to come in and the the um, opportunity gaps began closing and the grade gaps began closing then three four years in people are starting to ask questions huh okay there might be something there and then when we follow the students and we show that even though you cut a lot of content, they're still performing at a high level in the upper division classes. Okay, mm-hmm. now people start to trust your methods because they've seen the evidence of it, right? So it was important not to go in there to proselytize, um, <laughs> uh, be, be a bit patient um, for people to come to their own space uh, for understanding um, 
you know what this process is like. So yeah, man, I I wouldn't equate our one with necessarily what the culture is because it just it's so uneven. <laughs> you yeah, know, regardless of the campus, so so uneven. Yeah, I think from my experience, and uh, you know, my sister is a uh, a tenure track professor at a mm-hmm. at an R one, uh, not in in science uh, at all, um, but still talks about sort of publishing. And I send students mm-hmm. out to a lot of colleges and, or once upon a time, I used to send students out to colleges and universities as part of a uh, job shadowing program where they'd go and meet labs and stuff like that. And uh, I agree with your assessment that the, the type of school you can't just judge based off of size or uh, you know, whether there are one or not about whether or not they're going to have a commitment to teaching um, that, that it is variable in there. But uh, as a general rule, you tend to see those large research universities um, tend to weight their, their rankings of, or your pathway to, Mm -hmm. to tenure track um, as sort of a default is weighed less towards the teaching than the liberal arts schools. So I think that's sort of my bias, uh, my bias that I brought into the question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, that's, that's not untrue. Yeah. Um, but it's also part of the problem. <laughs> it is, it is part of the problem. So right. yeah, I, I'll be honest, like as a, and again, I'm a UMass grad, so I see URI and I think of, you know, old A10 days and, uh, not, mm-hmm. <laughs> not, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's not a place that I've, I, you know, I, I have a lot of experience with, uh, experience wise, but when I hear you talk about what your classroom is like, I think of as somebody who has, you know, teenage sons, like my URI, let's take a look at, you know, URI as, uh, as a school, because I like the the values of, of what mm. you're putting out there. But uh, let me, t- I'm going to roll the clock back a little bit. I mentioned it earlier, but I, you've mentioned inclusive teaching. I think you've brought up a lot of the ideas. And I think that um, many people who are, you know, middle-aged, such as myself, think of an introductory biology course and think of the one that I went to many, many years ago, mm-hmm. where I went into a giant lecture hall that held you know, 150 to 200 people. Um, I'd go and I'd sit down and I'd furiously take notes and I'd do that two or three times a week. And maybe I would have a a lab that would have quizzes in it occasionally, but the bulk of my grade was going to be, you know, three multiple choice tests that I would take some nights during the the course. And, and basically I could show up if I wanted to, if I, Mm -hmm. if I didn't, no big deal. Like Mm -hmm. how, I, and I've, I've, I've heard you talk. I, I've read your stuff. I, I know that's not how, to, how you operate it, but like, what is the experience of a student who's taking an intro biology course with you today? Um, it's not just furiously taking notes from slide decks that you've uh, thrown together in your office, I imagine. Well, I mean, the first thing I could, I could put to bed is that there are no slide decks. Mm-hmm. Um, if I do, in fact, use slides, I probably use about two <laughs> slides. Um, so uh, let me, let me, so that's a couple points to this yeah. to your question, Aaron, that, that yeah. I think are really important. Number one, that model you just described, which by the way I went through as well, yeah, I think is a consequence of the culture of you are an expert in X, and therefore your job is to now go and deliver your expertise in fifty minutes or less, three times a week, mm-hmm. right? And then these waiting receptacles will absorb that expertise and reproduce it for you every three weeks or so. Via multiple choice exam, the more they can reproduce that ugu, they have learned that. <laughs> and, you know, perhaps every learning sciences model would show you that a lot of that is false, patently false. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, there's actually, to me, a, a deeper issue with that model, and that is 
there was a, a kind of an assumption, maybe correct at one point in time, that the professor in the textbook and the classroom was a, a gateway or a bottleneck through which you had to pass through to access all this information, mm-hmm. right? So when you paid your $10,000 plus tuition or whatever, you, you're paying to, to hear professor such and such talk about this thing for this amount of weeks and you're just kind of receiving this. I don't need to tell you that, <laughs> that, so, I mean, and you know what, Aaron, I actually tell my class this on the first day of class, like, every single learning outcome we have on, on intro bio, you can find a very good YouTube lecture for free. And I, I mean, very good, not like somebody who just threw together something in the basement. I mean, well curated with examples. I've looked at all of them and I know them because I use them in my class for them to look at before they come to class. I do a kind of a semi-flip type teaching. Mm-hmm. All right. So this this bottleneck model, it, it doesn't really exist. Maybe for the really high end, like particular areas of astrophysics or something. But <laughs> especially first two years of college, you could actually get all of that, you know, almost completely free. And this is the stuff that is driving the OER movement, the open education resource movement. That yeah. the content shouldn't be what we're paying for. It's the curation of the academic experience, right? So I kind of put that to bed. And, and I think, you know, the question is, I feel like a lot of professors haven't been able to answer for themselves is, okay, if the model of information delivery delivery gets outsourced, which is or it's already happening, mm-hmm. what would what would be your use? What would you then show up to class to do? If somebody knows they can sit at home, I don't know, during a pandemic, and <laughs> access high-quality lectures on anything they want from the comfort of their bedroom, what makes you so special, right? You are one of hundreds of people with a PhD in this thing. So uh, so, so I think the notion of, of what it means to teach and what teaching is, you know, there's a phrase I use, which I credit to Elizabeth Mohey, um, who wrote a paper called I Teach uh, Students, Not Subjects. And the, when you say I teach students, right, now you're talking about relationship building, you're talking about cultivation of power, you're talking about liberatory pedagogy, that's what you're talking about. When you're focused on teaching subjects, you're focusing on, I need to tell you what my expertise is, right? Mm. So, so that's the content piece. On the assessment piece, I, I, I teach an intro class, and which means they're mostly first-year students. And part of my own due diligence on understanding the, the mindset of first-year students, um, the mindsets of the first-year students that I have in particular at University of Rhode Island, um, things like sense of belonging, things like stereotype threat, things like you know just general struggles with transition to college. I understand that the first three weeks of college could be make or break. Hmm. You know, I send a survey to the students before... I see them. So I get my roster fairly early, so I send them a survey just to kind of get to know them. And one of the questions I ask is, when last did you take a science class? And it is shocking, the disparity of responses. Some come from AP Bio. Some took a general science class as a freshman in college. (laughs) Sorry, a freshman in high school. Mm -hmm. And they are all seated in the same room. Right? (laughs) So... And and that that's just the that's just the who have science experience. That doesn't get into 
different economics, different ethnic minorities, and, and all of the things we understand about identity contingencies. So the result of that, Aaron, is that people can struggle in that first semester or in the first few weeks for reasons that have nothing to do with their ability to actually do science. So it is my job as an instructor to design an assessment structure that allows both myself and the students to detect where they are, the things they need to work on, without it sinking their grade within three weeks of the class. <laughs> so that that example you talked about where, you know, every month or so you get one exam that's like 25% or 30% and a final that's like 40%. You know, that, that, yeah. I, I went through that too. Um, our first exam was 15%. And then there's, there are a lot of quizzes, like, you know, surprise quizzes that they do. And there's a group homework and there are peer evaluations. There's a whole bunch of different ways you could earn points, right? And so you could uh, surmise that you could get a zero on the first exam. It's out of 50 points. And still actually pass the class. Now, nobody gets a zero. Somebody might do really poorly and get, say, 25 out of 50. But that's still, if you do the math, only takes away about 7.5% of your final grade and that is done deliberately so by time three weeks is, is in regardless of how well or how poorly you might be doing i have this whole data set of quizzes i have the summative exam i have the group homeworks i have attendance that i can sit and, and talk to the students who according to my grade roster are struggling struggling a little bit about the specific things they're struggling about right um you know typically they'll say things like you know, I just need to study harder. Well, tell me what that means. <laughs> when you say study harder, like walk me through <laughs> yeah. what you do from the moment you sit in the library or wherever you sit to when you get up. So the reason why you need to get that specific is because you need to give something they can actually act on. Because without that, what it will do is just the same bad study strategy, just 10 times harder. <laughs> I was up till 3 a.m., what does being up until 3 a.m. have to do with studying well, right? Yeah, so, exactly. you know, you have to kind of have all these conversations, um, which, oh, by the way, has nothing to do with bio. It has to do with how do you learn as a human. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> to, to really kind of get them to the point where they feel agency to do so well in the subject matter. And, and I've got to tell you, Aaron, that's one of the reasons why I love intro bio, because honestly, it's really more about the intro than the bio. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <clears throat> Well, those conversations you're having are, I, I, I have the same conversations with my, my freshmen um, mm -hmm. a lot, you know, freshmen in high school, not freshmen in college, because mm -hmm. I often will have students who, you know, are nice, polite kids who've never had to study before, but were mm -hmm. always able to, you know, I don't want to just say regurgitate information, but yeah. a lot of the science that they've had before they get to high school involves just Oh, it's a set of vocabulary. The mm -hmm. level of application is, you know, it's it's appropriate for being less than high school. And right. when they get to high school, they have to suddenly apply things. And if you've never really practiced that, some students, it comes more naturally than others. Um, mm -hmm. Some are a little bit more attentive in class when we're doing that practice than others. Mm -hmm. And when they sit down and take an assessment, it's the first time for some of them to get a less than, you know, a grade on anything. Right. Um in terms of that. So a lot of the conversations you were just describing that study harder. Oh, I did, they just read the textbook five times as opposed to I, once. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I was like, do you want me to show you the graph that shows what happens after the second time you read something and how much, you know, you don't, right, you're not getting right. anything on that, that right. third and fourth and fifth ret retention, you know, the retention doesn't change. Yeah. Um, well, we, we have a class logo that says you don't 
truly understand something until you can explain it to your roommate. So that's <laughs> yeah. that's the standard um, everybody is held to when they study something. Um, yeah. Go find somebody to explain it to and make sure it's correct. No help, no assistance. Until you can do that, consider yourself not done. <laughs> yeah. And then the other thing that sort of popped up as you were talking about it, and you, you'd mentioned early that you had a, a theater professor <clears throat> that sort of, you know, you talked to somebody about about your teaching and sort of the theatrical style. And as you were talking about this grading, I actually, again, got a flashback to, I think it was, it was probably my sophomore year of college. I took a, uh, of all things, I took a three hour once a week poetry discussion. Mm. Um, and it was the, it was the first time I'd ever taken a class where you got these, you did this work and you showed up and you had to do a writing at the beginning of class and you got work. But if you, the, the rule from day one was if you got an, a, a better grade on the final than your average, you got that grade. And they said that from day one. And I will tell you as a, you know, 19, 20 year old, you know, sophomore in college, uh, taking poetry as a bio major, I did not do very well for that first two and a half months of that class. And so I'd sit and I'd write and I'd think I'd do a good job and I hand it back and I get back and I was getting terrible grades in that. Mm-hmm. And I went and I met with the TA and I talked with them and I went over things and I asked questions and I had to like, I had to learn how to learn that stuff. I had right. to learn to engage with material that I, I was unfamiliar with. It was interesting and the class was very interesting, but I, I wasn't good at it and it was right. totally out of my comfort zone. And right. I, and I nailed the, I got an A in that class because I got an A on the final, but because I had to put in work to do it, right. but I, I never struggled when I got to college. I never went through, even though I felt at times overwhelmed or I, at times, uh, you know, felt like I was struggling at, at various things. I never had a sense of imposter syndrome for being at college. Like mm-hmm. I never had a sense that my identity wasn't destined to be at college someday. And mm-hmm. I know that a lot of the work that you do, you you really bring up, and I think it was probably one of the things that resonated so strongly with me, the idea of identity and how that plays a key role in the academic success of a student. So, so how do you structure so that you can help students? And as you mentioned, those first three weeks are so important. If you've got a kid who's gotten into college, but has that imposter syndrome, like how do you help them like get that sense of belonging to identify that what they have is imposter syndrome and that they're not an imposter? Like, is it just those conversations or, or what are some of the things that you do to surround a student to help them identify the things they do well and, and, and some weaknesses to work on and not feel like it's their identity that's leading them to struggle? Yeah. Um, well, I think the first thing I would say is I have some privilege in that I myself was a first generation college student. Hmm. And I say privilege because it worked out. <laughs> it didn't always seem like it was going to work out, but it, it did work out. Perhaps it was God's grace or something, but there were certainly some hairy moments. And, you know, if I'm to be fully honest, I, I when I was in college as an undergraduate, I didn't fully feel like I didn't belong, but I, I definitely made some mistakes that, say, had I... Um, come from a, a, a you know generations of college going um, individuals would have approached it in a much more uh, efficient and useful way right hmm. so I, I think I can look back on my own experience and use that it, it it sharpens my radar to some of the things that my students particularly the freshman level might do 
that are maladaptive to the college experience. Mm. Um, most notable in that is the, the, the hidden curriculum. I mean, I think there are some sort of basic things that professors and administrators and staff just assume students will know what to do um, when they get to college. And because it's assumed, it's therefore hidden. That's why it's called a hidden curriculum, right? Yeah. So those who do know how to do it, do it, <laughs> right? Those with some kind of privilege know how to go talk to the professors after class, go to office hours early and go every week, ask for yeah. help, it's no big deal. Go to the ac- academic enhancements. And if you have one, you know, talk to the professors about research, volunteer in a lab, like all of these extra things that really shape a holistic academic experience. If you don't know it, you might just think, well, if I just go to my dorm room and go to class, get my grade, I'll be fine. Mm. So one of the biggest struggles I have with IntroBio, or the things I work really, really hard on, is getting my students to come and ask for help. And there's a sense in which, and they've said this to me explicitly, I don't want you to think I'm stupid. Yeah. I don't want you to think I'm I'm not trying. I was like, I know you're trying. This is, you know, you asking for help is not a reflection, right, of the effort you're putting into this course. In fact, the fact that you're asking for help demonstrates how much you care about your performance and your future, et cetera, et cetera. And so I have had to have that conversation so many times. <laughs> um, but I understand that if you are you know, new to this space and you don't come from a, a, um, a family or a generation where you, you're having these discussions about taking agency and taking initiative about your grades and things like that, then it, it seems fearful, right? So there are just little things you, you can do to ease that fear. So for example, my office is on the fourth floor of a very nice building, um, but I only have two chairs in my office, right? Um, in higher ed, of course, professors have what people typically know as office hours. Mm-hmm. We call them student hours, right? Simple name switch. <laughs> Why? Because some students actually thought, they actually thought that office hours was the professor's opportunity to check their email. Like people have said that to me. Wow. And they've said that because they've gone, gone by offices and, you know, they, they do this thing where they close the door, like not all the way. So technically it's open. Right. <laughs> and so they're in there checking their emails. So if the student walks by, they don't want to, they'll feel like they're going to bother you. Right. <laughs> so just changing it to student, I was like, no, 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 this is for you. This is part of your kind of tuition paying contract. Right. Where there's these extra sessions that allows for more focused discussion. Okay. That's one thing. Second, those student hours are held in a dorm. The oh. dorm of these, one of the dorm buildings, have, well, all the dorm buildings have this. In the basement, there's kind of like a big classroom that holds about 35 or 40. So I have 150 students. We average about 30, maybe 30 to 35 students attending that, right? Why? If they came to my office, I have two chairs. <laughs> if you kind of do the math in two hours, how much people can I really see? So now if you have this space, you can put them in small groups, you can answer questions together, you can have people help each other. I mean, it becomes this just wild, in a good way, <laughs> kind of experience, right? So all, all these, and by the way, Aaron, all of these things are done 
partly because I know the literature on, on sense of belonging and, and the immigrant experience and imposter syndrome. You know, I've read all of that. But also I, I talk to them. You know, I, I ask them for feedback on, on, you know, what they've identified as their biggest challenges in the first semester of college. And then in future classes, we design the support structures to reflect that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's really humbling, but it's also really rewarding. Yeah, I mean, some great things. Again, you're making me think back to my, I, I don't think I've thought back in my college days more in an interview than this. That's what I have to get a professor on. But so I was, um, I, I was going to say, I, I was the co-first uh, graduate uh, from my family from college. Like I, my mother and I got our undergraduate degrees on the same day um, <laughs> at UMass. Uh, we were actually pictures yeah. of the two of us in the stadium. Yeah. So both my parents had started college, but had not completed. And when I was when I was in school, my mother re-enrolled to finish up her her undergraduate degree um, mm-hmm. the last few last few years. But um, I also went to college in my hometown, so I grew up there. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because I remember like that hidden curriculum, the not knowing what to do. And I remember distinctly. I think the advantage I had is while I didn't have that experience, I was aware of the things I didn't know, mm-hmm. and I knew people in that I felt comfortable going to talk to. Mm-hmm. So, so I remember or distinctly early on in my college career being put into a college math class that I should not have been put into. I did not have the background. It was, I, I don't know why they put me in that class. I was like, equation seven. <laughs> yeah, it was like, I, I looked, well, I had two choices and they put me in mm-hmm. basically the, the higher end calc, which I just didn't have the foundation for. Mm-hmm. And like, again, that hidden curriculum, what do you do? What do you do? Like I was just in over my head and I wasn't going to catch up. And I walked into the math office to, to ask about like, what do I do? Do I, it was too late to drop the class. I was gonna have to withdraw. And I walk in and the Dean happened to be the mother of a kid I grew up playing basketball with in town. Mm-hmm. Um, and she came, walked over, she gave me a hug. She signed my paper. It was like one of those kind of things where it's like, right. I didn't know what to do, but I, I always had like faces of people around that campus Mm-hmm. that I could always turn to. Um, and for a big school, that is a very, you know, you use the word privilege. It, I no, had no idea how privileged I was at the time that I had people who made that big, you know, new experience for me very small. Um, and I had people looking out for me all over the place. So um, yeah. The other thing that brought, you brought up and as I was thinking, I was like, oh, 35 people in, a, in the, the student hours. That's great. What do you do during a pandemic? Um, so, so I don't know if you've had complete, and I'm, I'm sure you're in a, this, you know, liminal space like me where, you know, it's like, I don't know what I'm doing. I had an an experience where I did some emergency stuff the last few months, but Mm -hmm. you know, as we move into, uh, I know that some Rhode Island schools are going back. I know that a lot of schools are making their announcements. My school is rolling out potential plans for hybrid versus distance versus all these other things. But you know, I, and we mentioned it earlier, but what challenges and opportunities are you anticipating in the upcoming school year? Um, I guess particularly around the idea of having inclusive teaching practices to, to help students. Um, it seems like a lot of the stuff that you do is reading subtle clues that are so much easier to do in person. Um, uh-huh. are, you, are you grappling with how to maybe do that if you're not going to have as much, you know, in the same space time as your students? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot to grapple with right now. Um, yeah. Obviously, I'm grappling with the same thing every educator and every administrator is grappling with in the country in that, you know, what kind of model do we offer? And I think any plans that anyone's making right now, including myself, can all get shelved 
um, <laughs> should the you know should the numbers go in the wrong direction on this. So it's it's tough preparing for the unpredictable, but but we but we have to. Um, right now, my plan is actually to offer uh, a limited face-to-face experience. Um, so there's there's some newer buildings on my campus that are really good at like flushing the air out and things like that. And so I'll divide my class into three, right? So 40 students would meet on each day of the week. So every, every student will get a chance to be in person, but it will be in a room that holds about 300. So they'll be really spaced out and in a building that flushes the air out. You know, everyone with masks on and hand sanitize, all that good stuff. So we're trying to set up a situation that really minimizes the risk quite a lot. But but we still could actually see each other physically. Hmm. Um, and then that, when I do that face-to-face, that will be live stream for anybody who's not in class that day. Um, so if this plan does go through, right, and this is scheduled for the fall, which... I believe we start out right after Labor Day. Um, I will still get a little something. I mean, it's it's a little different to read people's facial cues when they have a mask on. But, yeah. <laughs> um, but it, it'll, it'll be nice to still have a little, at least that option and not kind of fully online. Um, my colleague and I who teaches another section have been toying with the ideas of, of uh, student hours that are outside um, you know, it's pretty nice in New England, probably up until Thanksgiving, I would say. Uh, you from up here, so you yeah, I was like, <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> yeah, it depends, right? Yeah, yeah. Wait next year and see what's up. Yeah, I'm um, surprised. I'm surprised to say you say that, knowing where you grew up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm six years. Yeah, I've kind of gotten a little used to it. Um, but but you're right. Every year has been very different. I mean, I've, we've some years it snowed on Thanksgiving. Some years it was like 80. You know, so. Yeah. Uh, we'll see what that happens, but we're trying to think of unique models to keep the risk low, but still have some some kind of face to face. The challenges, I think, is is going to be really thinking about the different spaces that the students are in, because when they're in a classroom, the classroom sort of equalizes to some extent. Um, the experience. And it doesn't make people's inequities go away. You know, low income is still low income and things like that. But in that classroom, you're just a student in that classroom. And I, as the instructor, kind of cultivate that space and say, no matter what you came in with in terms of your life history, here you are all rock stars to me, right? Mm. Once people kind of go their separate ways and have to log in from home, yeah, they're still my rock stars. But you know, not everybody may have access to a quiet space in their house to log on three times a week at exactly 2 p.m. Not everyone might have high-speed internet, like the fastest internet possible to run four Zoom classes a day. Mm. Not everybody really wants to be turning their, their, their video on <laughs> and, you know, showing their, their home environment to the, to the rest of the class. Um, so I think we have to think a little bit differently if every member of our, of our classroom is in a different physical location and how that person might feel about that location. So I think that that would perhaps be one of the major challenges. Um, I When I switched my class in the spring, I teach a much smaller class in the spring to remote. Um, I, I thought it went pretty well. Um, you know, we all, including the students, did lament that we really enjoyed being in the physical classroom, and we preferred that. But we understood that to stay alive <laughs> or to stay yeah. COVID-free, you know, we had to do this. And 
I'm trying to, my challenge is going to be trying to think about how to create that same affect come the fall. So you're going to laugh when I tell you this, but I'm actually trying to design the live stream experience to feel like your favorite radio program that starts at 2 p.m. Monday, Wednesday, Friday. <laughs> I don't want you to think of it so much as class, but this is a, you know, you log on and, you know, yeah, there's work and stuff, there'll be stuff to do and preparations, there'll be exams and stuff like that. But I, I wanted to actually have a bit more of a podcast feel mm. meets active classroom meets, um, you know, inspirational kind of TED style um, uh, information delivery. I, I don't know how else to put that, but but I, I think if if this can't just be what happens in the classroom gets put on the internet, right? <laughs> um, and so we have to think about what unique features of being online and and engaging in that space has to make people really want to do that. And I've always seen my practice from the philosophy of, I think it was... Um, I think it's Jose Antonio Bowen who wrote the book Teaching Naked. And he's, he talks about technology in the classroom. So a lot of professors, oh, I don't use laptops and you can't bring a cell phone. And <laughs> uh, I was like, you know what? I want this class to be so good that you don't want to go on your cell phone. That's the challenge I'm going to issue to myself. So in the same way, I want this live stream to be so good that you can't wait for 2 p.m. to log on <laughs> or you know, if you have to do it later, then as well. So yeah. wish me luck. Well, I mean, you know, as you were saying, the thing that made me laugh is that I don't think uh, my students live, like they, the only thing they live stream is watching other people play video games. Um, so I think your, your goal should be that you're, you're a Twitch video game should be the, the model that you aspire to, because I don't think I'm thinking of my students. Like if I told them that there's something that's scheduled for 2 PM, I think they'd be confused. Like the only thing that's scheduled in their lives is school. And then they watch everything on demand. Right, 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 right. Maybe, maybe that's what I should do, like Brian Flicks, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You got to come up with a, a, a cool Twitch uh, name, and then. Uh... <laughs> but yeah, I, I love the idea, and and what you said about cell phones is like a hundred percent my thought. Um, my kids, uh, and I, you know, again, very privileged. They teach a lot of honors and AP students, and yeah, they take out their cell phones. And I've worked with populations who were coming to school a little less engaged. And I, I understand that every student who walks in the door is a little bit different, but it's not uncommon for my AP students to have their cell phones out. But I also encourage them to take pictures of, you know, lab setups or things that we're working on, or, you know, you know, if they're working on something and they want to take a picture of it or uh, look something up quickly on their phone, like I don't mind that. Um, but I don't view the phones as a distraction, but just as an extension of what the kids are always doing. And, and that is the engage having a phone out and being engaged are not mutually exclusive in my room. Mm -hmm. Right. So, all right. Well, we've come towards the end here, uh, but before we get to uh, your question for me, which I'm honestly a little bit uh, worried about. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't <mean>. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but in the upcoming years, uh, what are you looking forward to in your classroom? Um, in the classroom or on campus in general? Yeah, you can you could say either. I mean, I think your work extends beyond your individual classroom. So if it's campus work, then 
that that's totally on board. Yeah, I mean, I, I for the class itself, I mean, it, it, we are, and by we, I mean myself and my learning assistants, we are all harshest critics. Um, yeah. So we, we always looking to up the ante on everything we do after every single semester. We, we look at everything from the exam questions to how different topics were addressed, how we responded to students' inquiry, and we always trying to get better. We're never satisfied. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that will just be a feature of of how intro bio looks like. Um, and perhaps selfishly, you know, we, we continue to make it more intro than bio. And so it's it's really using the things that are unique to biology, you know, understanding how we look at data and look at the world um, to help people cultivate a sense of agency and a sense of ownership of their future. So the class has some really explicit social goals and and we unapologetic about that and we continue to kind of go down that stream. Um, in the future, I'm looking forward and hopeful of just a broader transformation of what it means to teach in higher ed. Um, when I have conversations with audiences, uh, higher education audiences about about inclusive teaching, you know, I tell them like, look, you know, K-12 has been talking about this and doing this and writing about this for a century. <laughs> we we are late, late, like super late to this game. Like it, it's, it's, it's amazing. And part of it is the story I told you earlier about what constitutes teacher training, quote unquote, <laughs> at the grad school level. And what I know my wife did to become a classroom teacher. Well, she's a reading specialist in Stoughton, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's mind-boggling, right? So um, we've seen some evidence that uh, people are being a bit more sophisticated. Uh, programs are requiring things. You know, I myself offer a class on on higher education curriculum design, of of course, focus on inclusion. So there there are things happening that suggest the needle is moving, but I don't think it's moving as fast as I would like to see it. And I I would like even at an R one school. Um, you know, maybe it's not, I, I think sometimes the term R1s and liberal arts creates this artificial division between um, the, this kind of perception that, oh, okay, this school really, really cares about its teaching and this school really, really just cares <laughs> about this research because that's an, it's a research one. Yeah. Um, you're a research one university. You have 13,000 undergraduates. You better care about your teaching. Like, you know, so you can't, like, yeah. you can't, you can't have a model where that's the thing, right? Yeah. And so, so then if it's, if it's, if you really do care about it, your hiring practices will reflect that your evaluations will reflect that how you grant tenure will reflect that your pay skills will reflect that. Um, so looking at all of those systemic components, um, and transforming them to reflect or communicate that you really actually value, um, teaching that is, uh, inclusive of everyone who walks on your campus. Uh, that's the kind of transformation I'm looking towards. And I think it can happen. You know, we need some bravery. We need some mm-hmm. risk takers. Um, we need resources or, or maybe reallocation of some of it. But I definitely think it's possible. Yeah, I, I think you're 100% right that you there are a lot of ways to communicate value. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, I often say that about some some things or initiatives that we go on in 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 my school, in my high school. And then, you know, we go into a pandemic plan and they roll this thing out. And I'm like, is this thing that you've been saying is important is not in the, <laughs> is it not in the emergency plans? And I always say that when you go into an emergency, you find out what's important and what's not. And mm-hmm. if people value something, it's important. 
it's going to bubble up to a higher end. So um, maybe that is part of that opportunity that if people at higher ed are really working hard on their teaching during this emergency time, mm-hmm. you know, and they're, they're doing that component, there may be an opportunity to say, Hey, look, you know, look at what we did in, when this opportunity, we realized how important teaching is. And so maybe that, it, you know, again, the looking for silver linings wherever I can get them from the pandemic, <laughs> but <laughs> maybe that's right. uh, one of those values that we get out of it. All right. When you're not teaching, what do you, what do you like to do in, in Rhode Island? Um, well, in pre-pandemic times, <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I love, um, you know, I love to exercise. That's kind of my mental health thing. Um, and I think it's important to say that because yeah. sometimes in inclusive work in particular, um, sometimes there's a sense in which you have to kind of work yourself to death. This is burnout culture in higher ed that yeah. really bothers me um, because I've seen people be physically impacted or, or like, you know, marriage wise or things like that impacted by this, this pressure to work 80, 90 hours a week. Um, and so I, I think everybody needs to learn how to take your time, take, take their time, like take the time you need to break and, and not do work on weekends and run and whatever you need to do. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's what I do. Um, um, I, I was a really big, I am a big theater fan. So I try to support the local theaters. Um, and Providence has a pretty amazing restaurant scene for a small city um as mostly thanks to johnson and wheels because a lot of the <laughs> restauranteers are their graduates but it, it's pretty impressive for for the um for the size of the city um yeah my my uh, wife has been down there for the um providence half marathon a few different times um and i've i've gone down there a few things a few times to to do stuff and yeah it's not that far from i mean i live just just outside of worcester so um Mm -hmm. it's not it's not it's not a terribly long ride to get down there so yeah yeah and i I have two sons six and three so you know god knows they keep me busy so (laughs) (laughs) yeah that will that will do it i should i should have mentioned them first and then the other stuff because (laughs) (laughs) yeah there's something else man (laughs) Yeah, well, you got a pretty cool. I mean, not that you can go now, but when the when things open up, I've I've been to the Children's Museum in yeah, uh, yeah, in yeah, Providence. Yeah. That's yeah. great. When my when my boys were little, I used to um, you when you get the the season passes, you can go to their reciprocal. So yeah. like for two or three summers when they were very very little, we would one day a week go, and so we went to like literally every children's museum in new england i, I think yeah. i've been to it <laughs> yeah 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 we, we actually have the same same deal um yeah, it's a really really well thought of museum and we've gone to one in boston as well and the same the same deal so yeah all right well um now it's time do you have any questions for me um well yeah it's just maybe an interesting question and it's, it's a flip of a question you might ask me later which is um you know, given that you're on a podcast and, and you're talking to all these interesting people, um, it, based on everything you've told me, I know you're probably up on all the articles, not just on pandemic, but on education <laughs> in general. What is something that you've read or seen or ran into recently that kind of really moved you? Oh, what is something that's really moved me? Um, in terms of... I mean, I, I've been doing so many different things this summer uh-huh. um, in terms of like from a reading standpoint, um, you know, we've had a lot of discussion about um, 
you know, systemic racism and doing book clubs and things like that. My school is doing uh, a current, um, uh, the, the, the Kendi book, uh, how to be an anti-racist as a book club. Uh, but okay. I've done some other work and, uh, the book, uh, why do all the black kids eat together in the cafeteria or sit together mm-hmm. in the cafeteria, okay. which was originally published, uh, gosh, about 20 years ago. Yeah. And then was, yeah, re- yeah. yeah, it was revised. Um, and I just went through the revision of that and man, it, it, it really struck me as, um, Probably I like it was the book that I was wondering while and I've I've read Stamp from the beginning and I've read, you know, the Ibram Kendi book and I've read a bunch of the other books. And I, I when I was going through, I was like, why isn't everyone reading this book? Because um, <laughs> I felt like it was to me, it felt more expansive and inclusive in terms of impacts of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Um where it, I felt like it talked about indigenous people and Latinx people. And like, it was much more spectrum inclusive right, in terms right. of experience and not that it went super deep, but it was a link, a lot more acknowledging of right. cultural impacts of white supremacy in a lot of different spaces. Um, and so it's one of those things that as I've been doing this book club in school, we just actually had a meeting where we had the book club and I was going through and the, the candy book's great, but it's like, I, I wondered what, like, I kind of was curious why certain books bubbled up and other books didn't yeah. uh, in this space uh, of why things. And I know that like white fragility got a lot of talk early on. And mm-hmm. personally, I was like, yeah, it's not a very good, like, I, I don't think it's a great, I don't think it's a great starting point. I mm-hmm. think it's an interesting book for comparison purpose. But if you're telling people mm-hmm. they need to work on white supremacy, read mm-hmm. white fragility, it's mm-hmm. to me sends very much the wrong message. So mm-hmm. I'd, mm-hmm. I'd say that's been one of the spaces I've been in the summer. And then uh, the other thing that I would throw out there is the podcast um, this week in virology, um, mm. which if, if you want to know what's going on from a virologist perspective about the pandemic, um, mm. They've been they've been putting one of these things out a week for more than ten years, um, oh, wow. I think eleven years. And then starting in the beginning of the pandemic, so going back to to March, they've been putting two and three podcasts out a week. And um, back a couple weeks ago, uh, episode six forty, they had a guy who on who came on to talk about like one dollar rapid testing, and, oh, wow. and then and then six forty one was with uh, Tony Fauci, so okay. like. Like that podcast to me is like appointment of listening. Like I, I listen to it all the time and I listen probably to way more podcasts than the average person. Um, but just, that's sort of how I, I, I live in an audio world. Right. That's my preferred when I'm you know doing chores around the house or right. work in the garden or doing anything. I'm, I'm, I'm always listening to stuff, but um, I would say if you've never listened to this week in virology, 640, 641 would be a great place to start. But it's, I think something that people should listen to because not only is it like good virology, they're a group of scientists. So they talk about the process of science. They talk about knowns and unknowns. They question science. They question papers. They raise like, wait, why did this paper say this? Why did this headline say this? This Mm -hmm. is my problem with this headline. These are the unanswered questions. They really engage in the process of, science is having a degree of uncertainty to it. And um, it's like an audio journal club. So if you love science and you like that, that, that gnashing out that happens, especially like with a contentious type journal club, it's, Mm -hmm. it's just awesome. Yeah. Why, why would I like science? (laughs) No, thanks for that recommendation. I'll I'll actually definitely look into that. Um, You know, I read um, Dr. Daniel Tatum's, the first edition of why all the black kids are sitting together at the cafeteria, not the revised one. 
Mm. Um, I remember one of the things I found interesting was that, uh, so I went to a historically black college, Mohawk's College in Atlanta, yep. Georgia. And so I think when I was there, there were 3,200 undergrads and three white boys. It was all male. And um, all the Trinidadians, where I'm from, so I'm from Trinidad and the Caribbean, all of us would sit together in the cafeteria. <laughs> so, you know, so, so just this sort of general point about, you know, kind of finding your tribe and, and um, getting reinforcements from within. It was, it was just an interesting kind of, um, and, and yeah, it's been an interesting space uh, with what people are turning to now for their lessons on race. Um, and I think there was a little bit of a critical mass thing with, you know, everybody was doing the candy book. And so, if it came up in conversation, well, what book should we do? Oh, well, I heard the candy book, and then everybody does the candy book, right? Yeah. I'm not, I'm not hating on it. It's actually, I read, you know, I read Stamps in the beginning. I read How to Be an Anti-Racist. I'm actually leading a book group now on it, and I like them both. Um, but there, there's, there's a lot out there, um, and one of them, if I'm just to flip the same question on me now, mm-hmm. is uh, that I'm finishing up now. It's called Race for Profit. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to, to use your um, language there, Aaron, it's good to have different books I think you could compare, you know. I don't think any one book gets it completely right. Certainly some books are, you know, better argued than others, I think, or better, clearer evidence for their claims. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Race for Profit, I, I don't even know if I would have that as a book club group unless the book club is meeting for like an entire year because each <laughs> he's so detailed and and he's telling you so the book by the way is about um he starts in the early days of redlining yeah and he works his way through the housing act and then up until i believe 2008 um housing crisis right and he's kind of showing you how federal policy and the relationship between federal policy and you know, unofficial redlining in the banking system and all of that stuff, how it kind of worked together to to continue disenfranchisement of minorities in different ways. And so he's he's walking you through all the policy, but also walking you through some of the characters, right? So George Romney, Mitt Romney's father, was uh, the head of HUD, I believe, um, during the Nixon administration. Before that, he was the governor of Michigan. And, and so he's, he's, you're seeing this kind of really complicated individual, one who seemed to champion civil rights in Detroit for some time, but then became <laughs> the face of some issues later on when he was at Nixon, but then he got kind of like kicked out. You know, it, it's really complicated. It, it's complicated. And I think it's important for people to understand that because sometimes unintentionally, some of these books on, on, you know, anti-racism or inclusion or diversity or whatever, kind of pitch this binary, they're good guys and they're bad guys type philosophy. Yeah. Um, and, and not everyone's, you know, not everyone has a clean record, right? And it's it's good to kind of see how that nuance is cultivated and to understand that. And I think it, it gives us perhaps a more sophisticated or a more appreciative way to address these issues in our own lives and our own places of work um, currently. Uh, the other book I, I resource I just want to recommend. This is a much shorter work. It's called The Slow Professor, um, and it's it was only like three hours forty five minutes, audible. So like you, I'm an audible person, <laughs> but um, it it it, it kind of reminds us in higher ed that we we have to learn to take time for ourselves. Like a lot of what we do, especially with 
with research, but I, I would argue teaching as well, requires mental time and space to think and think and do it well and think of all the complexities, etc. And there is this culture in higher ed, perhaps in America in general, where you work, 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 you check an email at 10 p.m., somebody emails you at 9 p.m., you feel you have to reply by 11, and <laughs> and you 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 get to a point where your brain just doesn't have the capacity to really focus on one thing and do it deeply, you know, get that, they talk about flow, yeah. right? Um, and then the culture... The, the culture of higher ed, I think, encourages that sometimes, right? Oh, look how much he gets done. Look how much she does. And, well, there are consequences to, to you know, grinding yourself into the ground. And and I think perhaps it took the pandemic to remind me to be careful of that. And I, I felt that book articulated it really, really well. Nice. I um, When you were talking about a race for profit, it sounds like a natural follow-up to Color of Law. It is. It is. In fact, he references it, um, and he yeah, he references it and talks about, you know, where that that book basically kind of was redlining up up until the Housing Act. Yeah. Where he, yeah. he goes, he goes further. He goes much further and in much more detail. Yeah, I find like, um, <laughs> I find redlining to be one of those things that like, I, I I'm shocked how little. Uh, my peers know about redlining. Um, oh, me too. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, just, you know, the, this idea of the, and again, you know, I am not, I am not somebody who is raised uh, of exceptional means or anything like that, but uh, there were not structural barriers to my family historically um, mm-hmm. that, that existed. And, you know, I've been, you know, I've been to Levittown and I've been to places like, you know, in various lo- locations and all I can think of when I go to, when I, I'm on Long Island, I go to Levittown or I go to any of the various Levittowns. The only thing I can think of is redlining. Like, like, like I like go in there. Like, I don't, I don't think I get anything else out of the experiences, but I look right. at the whole place in that. And, um, as I, I also have become aware that m- most people seem oblivious to the fact that this even mm-hmm. occurred, um, which, you know, it's, it's, a, it's mind boggling to me. All right. Well, it sounds like you blended right into your picks for me. <laughs> I did. I, my bad. I, no, you're good. You're good. So I, I'm going to give my picks because I actually, you asked me for picks. I gave picks, but I'm now going to actually give my planned picks for the episode, which are um, two things I picked up actually in one of those little mini PDs that I have, which are two ways of providing feedback that are a little bit different. Um mm-hmm. And this may be more of a K-12 kind of thing. I don't know how much you use um, uh, Google Docs. uh, Uh, A lot. (laughs) In your work. Okay, so maybe you do them. Um, So uh, Moat and Loom are both uh, Chrome extensions that you can Mm -hmm. get that allow you to provide, in the case of Moat, they allow you to provide audio feedback. They allow you to, like, record your voice sending a note and actually produces a transcript for it. So you can just, like read things, click, record, it pulls up a little transcript and then it drops it in. And if the student has moat um, embedded in, they can actually hear your voice saying the things. So for me, and they can read a beautiful tip. (laughs) Now, now I don't know how good I haven't used it extensively, so I don't know how good Mm -hmm. the transcription is, but it also, and again, I haven't played with a ton. There are also, you can leave them in multiple languages. So it can transcribe in other languages. Now, me with my, uh, you know, parsing of Quebecois that I have and my uh, 
<laughs> and my my English. This, I'm not going to be leaving in other languages, but I do know that for other students, that could provide an opportunity uh, to provide feedback, or it could for if you are doing world language, uh, could mm-hmm. also do it in that way. And then um, Loom is a similar uh, tool, except for it's video. Um, and again, I have had very little experience with them. These are th- tools that I picked up. Uh, I played a little bit more with Moat uh, just because, again, I'm I live in an audio world. But the idea that I can leave voice feedback, uh, particularly embedded in like a Google Classroom or a, a, on a Google Doc that kids have worked on, um, you know, it just it seems like a, a way of diversifying. Um, and I am not a particularly fast typer. Mm-hmm. But if I could just click on some a section and then like talk out my thoughts about the the section and give feedback, um, I, I'm very much looking forward to playing with that as, this upcoming year. Especially knowing that regardless what model we go into, I'm gonna have less face to face time with my students. Okay, yeah, that's, that's that's really good to know. In fact, I might spend time spend some time looking at that for fall. Yeah, and I will put the links as I always do in right in my show notes um, that I post up. Well, Brian, this was this is an awesome conversation. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thanks for having me, brother. Good All right. In, good luck in the next school year. Yeah, let me give my show credits before we sign off. Uh, please subscribe mm-hmm. to Life of the School on your podcast player of choice. Uh, you can support po- my podcast by going patreon.com slash lots. Bucket two a month uh, helps me uh, offset some of my costs, but uh, I also post up my, sh- my show audio early for my Patreons. Music on this and every episode is provided by Jake Jenkins and X Magicians. Show notes are available at lifeoftheschool.org as well as on the Patreon. You can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Matthew Tweets or at Life of the School. You can follow Brian on Twitter at BM. Dewsbury, and I will put that link in the show notes as well. So thanks for all for joining me, and I'll talk to everybody soon.